iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome back to The Game Podcast. This is part two of our Premier League season preview. I'm Tom Clark and joining me again, Alison Rudd, Gregor Robson and Tom Roddy. Now, if you're a contrarian like me and don't want to do things in order, you don't want to be confined by part one and part two, I just want to let you know that in part one, you've missed debate around the newly promoted teams, as well as chat about Chelsea, West Ham, Tottenham and a smidgen of the Women's World Cup. Now, also, at the start of the previous episode, we had a little joke, didn't we, guys? I asked you for a quick-fire answer on who was going to win the Premier League. We had Alison Rudd with her usual delusions about Liverpool's grandeur, and the other two guys went for Manchester City. Well... City will have to hope they're going to win the Premier League title because they missed out on an early season trophy, losing the Community Shield to Arsenal. Uh, At Wembley was everyone's favourite Yorkshireman, Paul Hurst, and he joins us now to discuss that match. Hursty, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. I'm honoured by that tag. I'm surprised. (laughs) Such such a modest man. That's why we love you, mate. (laughs) (laughs) I'm happy to stick with it for the rest of the season, I promise. Now, tell us about the game. It sounded to me from the outside and watching the highlights like your kind of vintage Community Shield type affair. It was dull. It was very dull. Um, <laughs> so, sorry, <laughs> I can't really say it in any other way. I, you know, I can't really big this match up. I've got a bit of a thing about the Community Shield. I just think it's a, it's such a, you know, a waste of time. Really, I know it obviously it's, it's done for a reason, and you know, charities get money, and that is obviously brilliant. But in terms of the spectacle, I mean, it's just. It wasn't a great match at all. I think both teams kind of stood off each other a little bit and City were didn't really create anything for Haaland. I think he only had 13 touches. Um, it was only in the second half when, when Guardiola brought De Bruyne on and Phil Foden that City came alive. Um, and, um, yeah, so I, it, was just a, it wasn't a, a sort of true reflection of how either team... Um, where they're at at the moment um, but you know there was a good goal from Cole Palmer to put City ahead um, and then there's a, a late equaliser deflected one from Trossard and yeah the penalties were I always thought Arsenal were going to win the penalties because Man-, Man City have got a terrible record when it comes to uh, comes to penalties so yeah they ended up winning it in the end and in terms of in terms of City then just to, just to start with them what have you made of their pre-season the signings, Mateo Kovacic, uh, Gvardiol obviously through the door now, but they've lost a few players as well. Is it slightly underwhelming or do we have to remember that they're the treble winners and they've got the perfect squad anyway? Yeah, it's, it is a bit, I suppose underwhelming is maybe a bit too strong, but it's, it's surprising how how little movement there's been in terms of incomings. Uh, I was speaking to someone at City towards the end of last season and he was pointing out that, that after... Pep wins things. He always likes to kind of shake things up, you know, shake the squad up to keep them fresh. So I was expecting, you know, maybe you know, four or five 
well maybe not like three or four players coming in and um, they've only signed um, Kovacic and, and Guardiol um, who are obviously very good players um, I was very impressed by him and Rodri are really um, really solid in, in, at that base of the uh, midfield but to me it just seems like they're one or two players short in attack at the moment particularly on the wings like they've got six centre halves and three wingers and two of those wingers uh, Bernardo and, and Phil Ford and like to play centrally as well so they just seem a bit um, you know they seem a bit short up front at the moment and that's maybe a bit ridiculous when you've got Haaland etc playing for you but in terms of the depth they could do with another winger I'd say unless he's his plan this season is to start playing the kids a bit more start playing Cole Palmer a bit more or, or Rico Lewis or James McAtee um, so yeah I, I think City they could do with another, at least another player in attack to bolster that squad. Lots of nods in the studio at your appraisal of Matteo Kovacic. We've got two of his biggest fans in here in Tom Roddy and Alison Rudd. Alison, what did you make of that signing from the outside in terms of a shrewd bit of business from City? Oh, it's phenomenal. It's almost unfair, isn't it? I mean, you just won the treble and you pick the perfect midfielder for your team. I mean, if anything, watching... Kovacic closely which I have done through his Chelsea career I often felt the rest of the team weren't at his level he's very very good at the quick pass the quick forward pass short quick forward pass which requires your teammates to be completely on point as they say and they weren't always at Chelsea and when Chelsea did play well with him in the team it was because he was dictating play and people were on his wavelength. At City, he's got a plethora of players who, because they're so intently coached by Pep to do the sort of things that Kovacic relishes in, it, he will be the perfect signing. S- such a dovetail signing, I can't tell you. And I agree with you, um, Hursty, that it was a slightly dull game and it's a slightly pathetic curtain raiser, but it did show us, even in something that was relatively drab, that Kovacic looked like he's in, a enjoying it, and b you know he, he's not going to need time to integrate. It's where he should be playing. So uh, that was the big plus for Guardiola, I think. Yeah, I, I thought it was an astonishing deal from from Chelsea side that they strengthen a rival with such a uh, a brilliant player. I mean, he, I was even though I am a big fan of his, I, c- I couldn't believe how seamlessly he fit into that. City side yesterday um, he looked like he'd been playing with them for years the, the, the only thing with Kovacic that's been missing from his game and that will be fascinating whether uh, Guardiola manages to um, improve this is his is his goal return uh, and we've seen that with Gundogan I mean he, was, he wasn't a particular goal scorer when he arrived at City and then um, turned into one I mean he scored Kovacic scored six goals in 221 appearances for Chelsea, three in 109 for Real Madrid. That That is his weakness if he has one. But I just enjoy... There are a few players I enjoy watching carry the ball as I do Kovacic. So if he's shrewd, what do we make of Kai Havertz, another player who left Chelsea... Uh, and this time headed to Arsenal. Um, Alison is desperate to, to <laughs> desperate to talk about him, but I'm going to come to Hursty first because he was there uh, watching him in the flesh yesterday for Arsenal. Hursty, Hursty, what did you make of his kind of debut, if you like? 
I, I thought it was all right. I, I, it was steady, but not spectacular. I think he's he's very good at pressing, isn't he? I think that's that's one of the reasons that that Arsenal have bought him. I watched him a bit on pre-season tour as well when they played in the US. I did a couple of their matches, uh, Arsenal's matches in in the US against United and the MLS All Stars, and he was quite it's quite good then at getting you know at getting forward and kind of pressing the the defence. And I think he's he's probably going to go for that midfield, isn't he? Of Havertz, um, uh, Odegaard, and Rice. That's the kind of dream midfield for him. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd, I didn't know whether Havertz was going to. Yeah, whether he play on the wing or whether he plays a false nine this season, I think. But Arteta's been big on. He, he said, didn't he, that he wants unpredictability this year. I think he wants you know to shift his team around a little bit more, change formation now and again. So, um, uh, so yeah, I presume that's one of the reasons why they've signed him. But it is a lot of money. Was it sixty-five million for him? I, I was kind of surprised at how much they paid for him. Um, but yeah, I suppose time will tell whether he he kind of slots into that team or not. It was the most interesting in terms of psychology uh, transfer of the summer by a long shot because Havertz has clearly got talent, an, an innately talented player who lacks something. And the question is whether, what, if you pay that much money for him and you're Arsenal, it's because you believe Arteta has a magic touch in terms of being able to work out what makes a player tick, what they need to feel comfortable, feel a part of the team. And I just saw exactly the same Kai Havertz I saw at Chelsea, which is one who is um, he's unsure of the right thing to do. There was uh, a, a moment that crystallised it where he was... It was a rare, rare, very rare moment of good Arsenal play. I think Odegaard played the ball into his path. And he had to make the decision quickly what to do with the ball. And you could actually see the cogs turning, and he didn't do anything. And this is what happens so often with Kai Havertz, he gets into, he makes the right run or he does the right thing off the ball and then the ball's at his feet or about to reach him and he, I don't know if it's fair to say panic, I don't know what's going on in his head, but he seems to take too long to decide what to do, which is probably born of a lack of confidence. So you've got this player who has innate ability but mentally doesn't seem to relish it and I... It, Obviously, this is the first game, marginally competitive game. Maybe Arteta does have what it takes, and you know, come October, November, whatever, we'll see some uh, the, the Kai Havertz we thought we were going to see when he first signed for Chelsea as a relatively precocious talent. But during the uh, Community Shield, I just saw more of the same, which is that he's going to be a highly frustrating player to play alongside, to manage, to be a fan watching. A lot of that is because he's playing through the middle, though. I mean, to me, Kai Havertz should be predominant, predominantly the guy making the pass, not making the run. I, I think he should be. So you agree with Hursty then that he, he actually should be not false nine? He should be in that midfield three with Odegaard and Rice. That's why the bottom as well. I think that's I think that's the vision for him. But he's been you know already been hamstrung. Let's say at the start of the season, he's hamstrung by Arsenal's lack of options up front. Gabriel Jesus is injured, so they're putting a square peg in a round hole, much like Chelsea did last season. So. If I was him, I would be a little bit miffed that this this he's kind of opening his his run out has been you know damaged a little bit because Arsenal only having Ketty are still behind uh, Gabriel Jesus, who's you can't rely. I, I still you know Arsenal spent a lot of money. They've spent what is it 180 million net, net this year, 500 million since Arteta's got the job, the most in the Premier League, and 
Jesus was a transformative signing, but you can't rely on his fitness. And if they're going into the Premier League campaign thinking they're going to go one step further, they need a backup for him. And that allows, you know, yeah, you've got flexibility. But flexibility should be in terms of the way that the team's fluid on the pitch and the shape that they play. It shouldn't be about playing someone out of position because they don't have anyone else to fill in for a striker. Yeah, well, I don't want to dwell on the game too too much, especially as Hursty said it was boring and he, and he absolutely hates it and I don't, want to, I don't want him to come back on for the rest of the season, so I don't want to upset him too much. Hursty, I want to talk about City more broadly. Um, they've won it all. You've seen them win it all. I'm surprised you've not been ringing the desk asking for a transfer to cover another club because what else is there left to do? How do you feel about the season going into it as the Manchester man? But also, how do you feel like the club are approaching it? You know, Pep Guardiola, known for his relentless energy, his drive. Is he going to be able to get that out of the players? Is it going to be about bringing through some of those young players that you mentioned earlier? I think it'll be it'll be a big challenge for him, but that, you know, that's he relishes those challenges, doesn't he? Um, it's, it's, I guess it's about hitting that reset button and, you know, starting, you know, going again, as they say, and but having the same kind of desire to win, win it all, and not kind of dwell too much on on the treble. Because you know, I look at you know some of the city fans I know are still kind of talk about that, you know, about the great night in Istanbul, and you know, as as you would do as a fan, but I kind of they've got to sort of move on from that as you know, you know, it's a great memory, but you know, this is a new season and. I just look at the way that Arsenal have improved their squad. Um, as I said, I, I did a couple of their games in the summer uh, in pre-season. I was just looking at the options that they've got, and it's such a deep squad. You know, if you've not got, if you know, Rice isn't playing, you've got Jorginho, then you've got Party, and then you know Trossard can come into the team as well. And uh, Timber's been you know fantastic as well. So, if anything, they've got a you know they've got certainly a deeper, a much deeper squad than Man City. Um, Pep likes to have a, a thin squad, so he keeps everyone on their toes and everyone's involved. Um, but I think it's the main challenge is mentally just to kind of move on from that treble and and you know and try and try and do it again because or certainly try and win the league again because um, I just think that this will be the most competitive league um, for some well for the last few years anyway. Surely Chelsea can't be as bad. As, as they were last season, United have improved as well, and I think that Pep will be conscious of that, um, and the fact that City have only brought you know two players in. Um, that's uh, that's certainly worrying some fans, but um, you see the way that Pep talks. He's, he's not that he doesn't seem particularly bothered by the fact there's only two, been only two signings. I think he's more more concerned at the moment in keeping hold of Carl Walker and Bernardo Silva. Um, uh, there was some pictures of, of Pep and, and Walker having a dinner last Friday, I think it was. Um, you know, just just those two having a two-hour dinner um, on their own. So you just wonder what you know what was said during that during that time together, where they said, you know, just give me one more year, or do you want to stay? Um, because he's been linked with Bayern Munich. Um, I just think if if they lost him and Bernardo on top of um, Gundogan and Mares, it'd be a, be a huge blow for them and as he said in the press conference on Friday you're not going to replace Bernardo Silva with a player for 10, 20, 30 million or even 40 or 50 million he's that good that you'd you'd be be losing one of the best midfielders in the world so I think if there's any concern on his part at the moment it's not about the incomings it's about about keeping hold of um, Bernardo and Walker where do you go after you've won the treble? I'll tell you where you go. You go to the eight-year-old boy in the crowd at Wembley who 
cried when Arsenal equalised and then cried in a City shirt and then he cried when they lost the penalty shootout and you think have some blooming perspective Alison it's only the pre-season preview (laughs) you can't be digging out eight year old football fans what's going on this is a positive standards it means it it still matters even even the community shield still matters when you've won the treble if you're an eight year old in a we're going to have to do something like send him a signed copy of your book you know like when someone hits someone one in the, in the stands with a ball and Alison's going to have to publicly apologise to that kid anyway It'd be a special guest next week yeah exactly uh, Hursty moving on to Arsenal then you mentioned some of the you know admiring glances you were giving their squad how, how did they look on the pitch but also how do you think City are viewing them you know because I'll start with you do you think it's going to be about these two again for the title I think so yeah I think City and Arsenal will be the, the main contenders then you've got you know, Liverpool again won't be as bad as last season. Chelsea too, um, and United have, have brought some good players in um, as well. So yeah, I think I think you know Pep will will see Arteta as as the main main rival. Um, I think when you when you spend like more than two hundred million pounds on on three players, it, it is a massive statement, isn't it, from a club to do that, and then to also be in the market for a goalkeeper as well who could. You know, cost you um, you know twenty, thirty million, however much David Raya had cost. You know, it's, it's it's a real you know signal of intent that Arsenal aren't you know are intent not to be just like you know a one season wonder and then sort of drift away. Um, you know, and the players that they've signed are quality players. You know, Kai Havertz. You know, we spoke about him. You know, if Arteta can get the best out of him, then you know they've made a good signing there, even if it is a bit overpriced maybe, but. You know, Rice is just like a he slots into that team so easily. You don't have to you don't have to do any coaching with him, do you? He's just kind of he knows all the game already. And then uh, and then Timber, you know, I've, I've been you know really impressed by how he his flexibility uh, on on tour. He was playing as a right back, but he was tucking his in as an inverted full back. And then he played also a left back, and he can play centre half as well. And he's just so comfortable on the ball. Um, it's um, he, he will venture forward, and you know he, he becomes another creative force in in Arsenal's midfield. So I think certainly if if you're looking at how how much they have improved this summer, then I, I imagine if you're Pep Guardiola, you're probably thinking that Arsenal will be the the main challenge again. Given how inexperienced Arteta actually is in management, this this is still his, he's 41 years old, he's a baby in management, this is still his first job. As Hursty sort of touched on there, it's all of their signings tend to settle in really quickly. Last year, Jesus and Zinchenko were immediate, had an immediate impact. Rice looks so comfortable. Timber, I was really impressed with. I mean, Havertz, I... I my personal opinion on on Havertz is that it's it's a little bit of an arrogant signing from Arteta. I think it's like a almost a, a project one. I can he he didn't work at at uh, Chelsea, but I know I can get the best out of him. And he's been he was unfortunate to have to play as the the striker yesterday because um, that's that's clearly not the intention um, and. 
it'll be fascinating to see how he uses him in midfield and how we see Zinchenko move into that area. I saw him talking yesterday about the, the benefits of and, and why it's so effective being a left-back who moves into midfield because he either creates space or picks up the ball. So the, one, the thing about Arsenal is that they seem really harmonious. And I actually enjoyed the Community Shield yesterday. I, shock, I know. Um, and the reason, <laughs> the reason was because it was it illustrated where Arsenal are. I've, I don't think I've ever seen a team want to win the Community Shield as much as that. And I don't yet know whether that is because Arsenal are so ready for the season or whether they wanted to have this psychological statement to themselves or Man City that they could beat them. It's starting again, isn't it, Game Podcast listeners? The Mikel Arteta Game Podcast fan club. I can't, I'm not sure who was the founding member, Gregor, me or you. I think it was probably just me, slightly, and then yeah, you joined. You, Sounds like Hursty's <laughs> on board. Tom Roddy's in I now as know. well. Gregor, are they, are they, are they going <laughs> to compete again? They're not underdogs now. That's the big change for them. Like You cannot be underdog if you're spending this money. As I said, the, the, the highest spenders in Arteta's four years in the job in the Premier League. And... Last season was such a surprise to everyone. Um, so many young players who kind of flourished. Um, I still, I still worry a little bit about any injury at centre half. And again, with Jesus being their only leading leading man up front. But there's a lot of flexibility. As Hursty alluded to, Timber could play right and left. Tommy Yasu is someone who's like a perhaps slightly less technical version of him. Still got Kieran Tierney who looks like he's way down the pecking order now, which really pains me. Um, and Ben White's flexibility, you know. So they've got a lot of a lot of options at the back, a lot of options in midfield, a lot of options out wide. I'm just not sure about up top still. Alison? They acted like underdogs, I felt, at Wembley, though. It's almost a bit embarrassing. But I do agree with Gregor that they can't keep that going. Then. They're, They're not the underdogs, but it's gone. It's, it's over. there and beyond. But do, do you think these two are going to be the top two battling for the title? No, no. We've had that narrative <laughs> and we don't want to do it. <laughs> And anyway, anyway, I think I felt City deliberately uh, went down a gear as soon as the commentary said that no team since 2011 has won the title when they've won the Community Shield. So. I mean, sure anyone, take, anyone drawing conclusions juice. from this game is like needs to give a head a shake because it was like, <laughs> oh, you know, very little in it. As Rusty said, it was fairly humdrum. Uh, a wonder goal, and then Trossard cut in and after dummying a centre-forward on the edge of the box in Alvarez and scoring a deflected strike, which took the game directly to penalties. <laughs> like, but that's why we're no talk- conclusion. That's why People we're say it's a broad- winning habit and stuff. It's nonsense. But that's why we're talking broad brush, isn't it? And that's why I'm asking about the broad season generally. And Hursty, you've, you've mentioned them a couple of times already. Manchester United, I'm going to, while we've got you on, because you were on tour with them this summer, and you've talked about them in contention for the title. Tell us a bit about that tour. Tell us about Eric Ten Hag. Tell us some insights from your time with the United squad this summer. Well, it was it was very much a Ten Hag tour. You know, last season um, they basically signed pre-season tours off in in February or March, I think it is. So he wasn't in charge for last year's tour, which was like a three-weeker in in Australia and Thailand, and so they were doing loads of commercial activities and open trading sessions etc but this one this year in America it was shortened to 11 days and um, Ten Hag organised everything 
uh, on that tour. So he chose the hotels, chose the trading grounds, uh, did the meet, chose like the level of media activity and commercial activity, and all that was reduced. You know, fewer commercial days uh, in which players, you know, Man United have got a million sponsors, haven't they? And they've got a I don't know, like an official mattress partner or whatever it is, something daft like that. Um, they usually have these kind of meeting, uh, these kind of meeting greets uh, with the players, but they reduce that that level of access this year. So the kind of the main focus was on football. It was just I know it sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But you know, some of these tours can get overtaken by these commercial uh, activities, and he wanted it just to be training game, you know, training rest games. That was it. Uh, all the hotels, all the trading grounds, were miles away from the city centres in New Jersey and San Diego. Um, and when they got to Vegas, they found out that they were in the only, only hotel on the Las Vegas Strip that didn't have a casino. Um, so I'm sure the players were gutted about that. Um, so it was all kind of like basically for the players to to focus solely on football, and uh, you know that's the, that's the Ten Hag way, isn't it? Tough training sessions. Um, uh, etc. As well, um, uh, some of the performances weren't great, um, but that, you know, in fairness, those the poorest performances came when the second string were playing. You know, players like Harry Maguire and and Donny Van Der Beek didn't weren't amazing. Um, but when when the when the first team was out, they looked they looked all right. They played well against Arsenal. They beat Arsenal, um, but lost to Real Madrid. Lost to Borussia Dortmund. Um, I think the biggest takeaway from it was the fact that they desperately need a striker through the door, uh, which they've now got in Rasmus Hoyland. Because uh, Jadon Sancho was playing up front as a false nine uh, for most of the tour. And he, he played, he, he did all right, to be fair. He scored a lovely goal against Arsenal. But, you know, that's not his position. And it's it's not what United will be doing um, for the rest of the, um, you know, for the rest of the season. Um, so... I, they were missing a lot of chances, and they, it just became clear that they needed that number nine in the team, uh, which they've now got. Uh, Anthony Marshall was didn't play because he's injured again. Shock. Um, so they've <laughs> they just need, need Hoyland to kind of get in, um, get bedded in, um, and you know, and start start scoring goals from because they've not had a focal point up front for so long, an effective one. You know, they seem to have bought these sticking plasters for the last few years, haven't they? You know, Cavani, Ronaldo, Igalo, Veghorst. Um, so they they need a, a a young striker who can can uh, you know bed himself in as that number nine for you know five, six, seven years, and that's what they hope that Hoyland will be in the end. You've talked about Hoyland signing. Mason Mount and Andre Onana also joining the club this summer. It, it feels to me slightly like an outsider that this is the first transfer window for a while that makes sense for Manchester United in terms of the players you look at you think hmm, quite quite impressed and surprised they've managed to sign Mason Mount okay Onana changes the goalkeeper from David De Gea which has been a major talking point for a long time and now as you say Hoyland um, stops that run of slightly bizarre striker signings does it feel like that to you? Was that the mood in the camp? Do you think that's Ten Hag's doing? Is it is it higher up than him? Where where do you think that kind of strategy is coming from? Yeah, I think he's certainly had a more of a you know he's had the he had control on it last year, but he has, he's had con, it seems more of a Ten Hag window again this year, doesn't it? Um, certainly Onana, um, you know, I've been very impressed with with how he played. Um, just it, it makes such a big difference when 
when you've got a player who can can play uh, pass the ball out from the back. There's so many games that United played last year where they were where they were just hoofing it. I remember that FA Cup semi final win over Brighton on penalties. Um, they were just, De Gea was just lumping it forward for Martial and and Rashford and Anthony and you know that none of those three are target men are they? They're just losing every header to to Adam Webster um, who was just monstering them every time. So I think they just didn't have a physical presence up front and I think they think they think that that you know Anana can can sort of get the ball if they want to go long or they want to have a, a kind of a good you know move it out from the back. They've got him and then they've got that physical presence up front as well. And Mount as well, he's, he's another that, um, I suppose, he kind of, if you look at it from a cold-eyed point of view, 60 million for a player who had 12 months left on his contract, it's probably still overpaid a little bit for him. But you're getting a proven Premier League player there who moves the ball quickly, is very creative, and he's very athletic. He's, he's brilliant at pressing. That was the most you know impressive aspect of his tour. Um, he didn't score or set any goals up, and I think he needs to add that to his game, obviously. But you know that'll come, and he, he's got to get to know his teammates and how they move and etc. So all in all, it's, it's been a good, good, um, uh, a good transfer window for for United. If they'd have got Harry Kane, he would have been exceptional, obviously. But you know, he's, he's still, I'd say, a, a seven or eight out of ten for United this summer. A final one for you, Hursty, and then I'll come back to the guys in the studio on some of the points you've made about United. You talk about a good transfer window. I, I would argue that for it to be a, a really good transfer window, they need to ship some players out, right? You know, yeah. you've talked about some some names there: Donny Van Der Beek, Harry Maguire. How likely do you think that is? Should United fans be excited about the prospect of a really refreshed squad, or are we still going to see these Carabao Cup matches with all these players being given the odd chance and? Poor people like that, you, poor people like you having to write your fifty-fifth million Anthony Marshall can this be his <laughs> chance article for the Times website? <laughs> yeah, yeah, copy and paste from the last one. Um, <laughs> the, the um, yeah, the they'll want they want that. They certainly want to get rid of the you know the deadwood. Um, you know, players like players that need a move. You know, Henderson, uh, Van der Beek, Eric Bailly, um Fred. You know, a Martial. You know, there's five that need kind of moving on. They need new starts elsewhere. Um, the problem that United have had in the past is that it's so difficult to get, persuade a player to leave United. Uh, a, because it's you know they'll probably see it as the the pinnacle of you know English football that you're playing for Manchester United. Uh, but also because they time to really long contracts with massive wages. You know, look at Phil Jones for example. He United gave him a four-year contract the week after Solskjaer signed um, in 2018, and you know because they were like protecting the asset because they thought they could get a fee for him down the line. But you were never going to get a fee for him because he was, you know, he's so injury-prone. Brilliant player on his day, but he was so injury-prone. So I think that's you know you've got that now with Maguire, haven't you? You gave him a six-year contract, um, and he's on a, a pretty big wage as you would expect to be for the for someone who was captain. Uh, at the start of last season but you know if you move him there's probably only going to be I don't know it, if, if they want sort of 40-50 million for him there's only like 5 or 6 7 clubs who, who can afford to buy him uh, and can, can afford to pay his wages so United will have to take a they'll have to pay I presume half his wages even if he moves somewhere else etc whether that's on, on loan or, or permanently and you've got to persuade him to move as well 
So the, certainly the, the will is there to move these like five, six, seven players on, but whether they actually do that is is you know it remains to be seen. It's a big test for the people like John Murtagh and his staff to actually get these players out the door. Because if if you're looking at the value of the, these players, you could easily you know get you know seventy, eighty, ninety million. Well, maybe I'm a bit optimistic there, but you know sixty, seventy million for these players. They, they can be spent on on, on another midfielder. Um, so, you know that's that's the test now for for United for John Murtagh to, to to get these players out the door and then reinvest that that money in the squad and obviously by getting rid of these players as well you have a trimmed squad I don't think Ten Hag wants a massive squad um, Solskjaer had a, a huge squad in his final year and it was just uh, he had like 30 odd players and it's just counterproductive that because you get players who, who know they're never going to play so um, he certainly wants you know in a region of 25 26 players in his squad including a couple of kids as well so it's um, yeah it's a big test for the you know for the for the people who are in charge of transfers at United uh, over the next few weeks. Work still to do for Manchester United. Paul Hurst, thank you very much for joining us on the Game Podcast. We'll hear from you again very soon, I'm sure. Thank you. Cheers, Hursty. Cheers, Hursty. See you later. So, team, lots of insight there from Paul Hurst. Tom, I'm going to start with you, and I want to ask you about Mason Mount, obviously a player that you've watched a lot in your time covering Chelsea um, and a player that you know uh, his camp and his family. Like, what, what? Tell us about this move but leaving Chelsea and also what you think he needs to do, he needs to prove at Manchester United? I don't know about what he needs to prove. Uh, probably after last season, he had a very difficult season last year, but I, I couldn't name you a single Chelsea player who did have a good year. Um, reading her uh, Paul's copy from the tour... It maybe sounds like he's struggled to settle in a little bit. The the one thing with Mason Mount down the years is that I don't think he is particularly appreciated by uh, the average fan because he's not a YouTube player. He's a, but he is appreciated by managers from the very beginning when he was taken to Derby by Frank Lampard. Maurizio Sarri wanted to take him back to Chelsea. He was put straight in the team by Lampard at Chelsea and was one of the main reasons that they got the Champions League that year. Wins the Champions League with Thomas Tuchel. Pochettino wanted him at Chelsea. Gareth Southgate plays him for England and Ten Hag buys him for Man United for a lot of money with one year left on his contract. It's no coincidence that all these managers like and love him. Um, I think he's a he's a terrific character for a team, and and he's one of those sort of understated stars. Uh, and I don't th- I think he'll, I don't think it'll take long at all for him to settle in there. It's probably the issue from what I've seen so far is finding the position that he should be playing. I actually think he'd like to play in that midfield three. But he's quite effective between the lines. He, he, his best moments at Chelsea were as a sort of double number 10. I thought it hampered him at Chelsea throughout his career, not anyone really understanding where he was best positioned. So when you'd have a poor game, you think it's being played completely out of position. You'd ha- even when he had a really good game, you think, well, you know, is he, is he still in, where should he be? I, don't, I personally don't think he fits anywhere. 
two contrasting views on Mason Mount there. Gregor, I want to ask you about Andre Onana. That United defence to me last season seemed like it was getting towards being quite settled, towards the end of the season. I think Martinez, so much chat at the start of last season about, oh, he's not big enough for the Premier League. You were one of the few people to say what a load of crap that was, and you were proved correct. Changing goalkeeper, though, and a completely different type of goalkeeper, a goalkeeper who might bring the ball out and try and nutmeg a pressing <laughs> forward. How do you think that might affect United this season? A lot. I think we'll see something much closer to Ten Hag's vision of what he wants Manchester United to look like this season. We all remember the calamity at Brentford last season, and at the start of the season, um, and in the early weeks, really, until that was consigned to the dustbin because Ten Hag realised that he didn't have the goalkeeper capable of being the, the foundation block for all of that, building it from the back. And he didn't have a, a back four with the kind of confidence, confidence uh, enough to, to play that way. I think that's changed. I think certainly in the... That's what Anana's been brought in for. The, the defence, the, the first choice defence is capable of playing that way now. I still think behind Varane and Martinez, it's a big drop-off. Uh, for Manchester United with Harry Maguire or Lindelof um, but I think I, as I say I think we'll see something much closer to what Ten Hag wanted wanted Manchester United to be last year but quickly realised they weren't good enough to do So with that in mind then Alison we were talking there we slightly grouped Manchester United in partly because we had Paul Hurst on but also partly he was mentioning them as part of the title challengers do you see them challenging for the title this season do they, do they kick on again or is it going to be about top four competition? I can't see them. I don't know really why. I, I don't see a complete. I don't see a completed picture there yet. Maybe, maybe I could. After a few games, when the season's up and running, I'll see what the picture is. With I mean, I hope. I hope first of all, Van der Beek gets a a good home because that's a tragic comic. That whole thing. Amen. And those sorts of stories, I think they bleed a club dry a bit because it's and Harry Maguire too it's all running along in the background it's like when you're trying to watch um, a serious drama on telly and in another room someone's playing The Office or something something light hearted and it, it distracts you slightly I do feel it's it still feels like Man United are a club that have issues to sort out including the stadium I mean it's just you know, they're a strange club, big club, biggest club in the world, arguably still, you could say, in some respects, under some, some factors, with a lot going wrong in, in the infrastructure. It's, it's, they're a strange outfit, and it's asking too much, I think, of any one individual, i.e. the manager, to fix everything. So maybe that's what I'm saying. I feel there's, too, there's, st- there's still too much to fix to see them as genuine title contenders because there's an undercurrent of reminders of mistakes and I don't know did anyone feel listening to Hursty that they solved everything in the window I'm less enthused by Mason Mount than you are Tom not I do agree with you I think he's a great character and I think he's very talented but I think he adds a headache because I don't know where you play him I, I thought that this summer was the sort of reshaping of Man United in uh, Ten Hag's image in that He's moved on De Gea and got Onana, a goalkeeper who plays in the way he wants to play. He's removed the captaincy from Harry Maguire. That felt like a a shift, a real shift. And he's gone for 
Hoyland in, instead of Kane. It, this feels like Ten Hag summer. Whether it's immediate, the impact, I don't know. We'll we'll find out as 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 time as the season begins. But um, they are clearly working towards Ten Hag it becoming the team that Ten Hag wants them to be. With a fair wind, they can be they can go closer this year. I think, like fair wind being through injuries and Hoyland being a success because uh, you know. Emergence of Garnacho as well. Somebody you expect a lot more from this year. Rashford just signed a new contract. Sancho looked like he's been, you know, happy in pre-season so far, and you'd hope to see something more from him. Casemiro was transformative last season. There are positives, and they've taken steps, but it's going to take a few windows because they can't just go out and because of the excess of the past. And as Al, you know, Alison's making a point in jest there, but it's serious. Like they've been like a black hole for a decade for some really talented footballers and ending that and starting to make a bit more of a success of things in the transfer market will edge them closer and it's, I think it's also it's slightly weird that one big impact that Ten Hag had was his attitude to Cristiano Ronaldo but that's a big question mark and someone being decisive but you're, the, the foundation of that is a negative so oh the team are better without him although you could argue a better manager might have got more from him. And then you've got, you've got Harry Maguire stripping him of the captaincy. Oh, that's dealing in a positive way. What a strong manager. All you're doing is taking something that was really quite... I think it's the Harry Maguire story is another tragic com- comedy one. It's, it's sad, as well as slightly amusing. But a lot of those things are, are issues out with Ten Hag and Manchester United's control. He's had an absolute nosedive in confidence. And yeah, you could try and help them through that, and I think they have. And it's, we've not seen the results yet. So. But these are not things that that make for a title bit, dealing with problems. Yeah, it's moving them on. I, I liked though when you said about finding Van der Beek at home. We we need you looking down the camera for like an RSPCA. <laughs> yeah, yeah, bring him on. <laughs> he can come on here actually. That would be great. He can find a home with the game podcast. That would be lovely. Oh, love Donny Van der Beek. Don't get me started. Now, my only worry for Manchester United is that they signed Rasmus Hoyland because he's tall, he's blonde, and he's got a name like Harland. That's my only. Concern. <laughs> the minute they start making him grow a ponytail, that's when I'm really going to get worried. helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did-we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 
36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Now, we've got to move on. There's still so much to talk about. The next category, guys, how clever is this? It's called Brilliant or Blunted. And we're going to talk about Brighton and Brentford. How about that? Hey? So we're going to go quick fire around the... Exactly. And I managed to get through that without stuttering. Superb, I thought, from me. Um, interesting for, for both clubs. Obviously, Brentford potentially blunted by having Ivan Tony uh, banned until January. Uh, Brighton, as well, have lost Alexis McAllister to Liverpool. How, do, how are we viewing their seasons? Because, you know, for, for much of the last two seasons, they kind of ticked that box as everyone's favourite other teams. Uh, you'd probably be voting for one of them. Um, how do we feel going into this campaign? Are we excited about them? Are we worried? Alison, I'll start with you. Go, go for Brighton first. Um, I don't... I, I think it's a very exciting season. I mean, it, you cannot overstate it's their debut in Europe. It's not that they haven't been in Europe for a bit. They've never been in Europe. And this is so exciting. And it's, a, it's deserved. And I think they will have a very fun time in Europe. And I think they'll surprise a lot of teams. And I think it'll bring great joy. But, of course, they're going to have to work out how you juggle that competition and the demands of the Premier League with having had players leave. We have to have faith in them as a club. They're very well run. They've, they know well in advance who they're going to be prepared to uh, sell at the right price. They will have worked it all out. They won't be gaping holes. They won't look embarrassed by the players that leave. But I just think it's probably a bit too miraculous to expect them to finish as high in the Premier League with the loss of key players and having to enjoy a European competition but I don't think it'll be a disaster I still think they'll come away from the season thinking probably I mean probably most people connected to the club put entertainment as quite a high priority anyway and and I think they will continue to do that we're not going to see a new character of Brighton they will still be entertaining Gregor, you talked in part one when we were discussing West Ham about following them on their European adventure last season. Now, obviously, that... whether are following Brighton this year. No, it's not breaking news, I'm afraid. Uh, we can discuss oh. it later. Uh, but what I wanted to ask was that kind of marrying those two things what, and still needing to perform in the Premier League. Obviously, West Ham last season failed to do that, but then won the European trophy. How do you see Brighton going tackling those two ambitions? They have... I said that a few times last year. I remember I went to the to watching them again uh, against Forest Green Rovers in the in the Carabao Cup, and they played the kids basically. But among them were Enciso, Evan Ferguson, and Matoma, and we know how they emerged later in the season. And you just have absolute confidence that Brighton have more of these players that we don't know much about <laughs> on the way, uh, and you're so excited to see more more from them this season. Um, and also like the. When Tom was speaking earlier about West Ham's, you know, foolishness in not trying to sign a replacement for Rice before Rice left, I just thought immediately of, of, of Brighton because they signed. Look, Caicedo probably will move on. We know that. They've already signed James Milner, who's not a replacement for Caicedo, but is someone who will be a big squad player for them when they're juggling those two campaigns. And Mahmoud Dahoud from Borussia Dortmund, or a free who. Yeah. 
two years ago was brilliant. Yeah, and he was injured last season for a lot of it. And it's like that's the typical kind of Brighton team, an undervalued player there. So the way they work their squad is, you know, for their level as good as any, as good as any club in 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 the Premier League. So I'm sure they'll be able to handle it. And well, they have Roberto De Zerbi, they will be, in my view, the best team to watch in the Premier League. Tom, full house of excitement for Brighton. Uh, I don't not not quite oh, because because of because of Caicedo. I would love to see actually. I'd love to see Caicedo stay at Brighton because that midfield of De Hood and Caicedo would be fantastic this year. And I, uh, I think by the sounds of things, Tony Bloom is desperate to keep him for that. I don't see it happening, but it's desperate to keep him for that reason. I think their their window has been excellent though because of getting De Hood in. I'm really excited by João Pedro. He looked excellent. He looked like that type of striker that Brighton have lacked a little bit for the last few years. And if you speak to anyone at, <laughs> at Liverpool over the last few years, you know the the stars were Mane, Salah, etc. But Henderson and James Milner were the guys who kept yeah, the standards in the dressing yeah. room. Yeah. So getting Milner in on top of Lalana, it's almost like this is how a top club performs and managing the dressing room. So pretty, pretty positive about that. <laughs> pretty positive, even if you're not fully excited. Brentford then, Alison. Obviously, the Ivan Tony issue is a massive factor with their season. Do you feel worried about them? With, with the Tony issue but also generally uh, they made a couple of signings but last season um, were still brilliant but perhaps didn't perform to the heights that they did um, the season before any concerns around them this season? Well I, I'm not going to pretend that Tony being banned until January isn't disappointing for them but I, I've watched quite a lot of Brentford mainly because I can cycle there quite easily if I'm completely <laughs> honest and I do love them as a club and it's a joy to go there so, which, which does mean I've seen them play without Ivan Tony quite a lot because he's been suspended or injured. And they've looked just as good in a slightly different way when he does play. They, they haven't... It's, he's, they're not a one-man band at all. And what was interesting last season was the... actually watching unfold, like a film, the development of Brian and Waymo, who wasn't a bad player to start with, but whenever he was needed to step up, he did. I think he's sort of a reluctant hero type of person. But towards the end of the season, Thomas Frank was saying, I, I now see leadership qualities in him. I think he's really underrated, uh, probably because he's gone under the radar, radar because Ivan Tony's stats, 20 Premier League goals took, you know, why isn't he playing for England? Oh, look at all the headlines about his gambling. He went under the radar, did Brian, but actually he's got everything. He's powerful, he's, he can finish beautifully, he brings other people into play. He's, he's a similar unselfish player as Tony is. He's got fearsome pace from a standing start when he wants it. I've seen top defenders look really quite aghast at what he can do. And what was nice was there was a trajectory going on which will now continue so that he will be the focal point for Brentford this season. So that, yes, they would be a better team with Tony in it, but they're not going to suddenly become relegation candidates because he's banned. So I'm not worried about them at all. Gregor? I agree, broadly speaking, but Tony is like their, their, their focal Do point. Do you think we'll it's strange that they've not bought in another player? 
Because Alisson, I, I agree with you, Alisson, oh. about Mbwemo. I think he's a fantastic player. I'd wonder whether part of his brilliance is alongside Tony. So I wonder whether over a long stretch that might that might be a factor. I, do, I, do I agree, though, with Alisson, that when, when Tony was out, Mbwemo stepped up and he was excellent through the middle. And he's like, they, The thing with Tony is he's the best player in the air in the league. And so he gives them an option, he, he, particularly when you're playing opponents who are better than you, to play play them at a game that they're better than anyone else at. You know, they can bully a team. Um, and so now they need to play, because they still play very direct, and they, now they're looking to play Embuemo in behind as opposed to up to Tony for the for Embuemo to make runs off him. Um, Shadi, who came in, in, Kevin Shadi, who came in in January, did a great deal in, in that second half of the season, but... I think they're expecting a lot more from him this year. He's a winger there, so they've got they've got lots of options, kind of wide forwards. But you're right, as in a, a traditional number nine, you, you weren't going to replace Tony. I, I don't know who else out there plays like Ivan Tony. Tom, I, th- I think they they at the beginning of this season just gone, they expected Ivan Tony and David Raya to leave this summer, and because of cer- the circumstances, Tony. Uh, hasn't and Raya hasn't yet, but Shardo was one of the the potential replacements in a in a different way. He's not the same player, but um, I actually think more when I think of how Brentford will do. I think of Thomas Frank because he's just so unruffled by all of these situations. He's that calm presence throughout, and then I sort of compare it to. Fulham and Marco Silva where the the uncertainty there and him getting frustrated by Mitrovic's future whether he's staying or he's not staying uh, the public outbursts about the lack of signings and frustrations about players who might be going and, and his own future so publicly uncertain it, it's it's um, it sort of derails the success they had last year or as Thomas Frank provides a consistency Sounds like we're in the category of quietly confident for Brentford which leads me perfectly on to the next game <laughs> of part two of the game podcast which is quietly confident or loudly worried Now we're going to whiz through a couple of teams here partly for time reasons because we've got to uh, crack on and there's still so much for us to talk about so apologies to fans of the teams coming up but I'm just going to go round list some teams and I want you to tell me whether you're quietly confident that they'll be okay that they might perform above expectation or if you're quite vocally worried now I'm going to start with Crystal Palace and I'm going to start with you Gregor worried yeah why you want me to expand that you can, you can okay. give a why you can give a why <laughs> I think these are quite uncertain times for, for Palace I think they've lost Wilfred Zaha um, Michael Olise is being being coveted by some of the biggest teams in the Premier League and he's injured Um Eze hasn't committed to a new deal and he's got two years left and like he'll stay but there's uncertainty there as well. Um, Chet Dukuri has been linked to Liverpool. There's still a lot of unknowns about the, their squad makeup between now and, and the end of the transfer window. And on top of that, for me, like I, let's not fall out with this, Alison, but I think Roy Hodgson was a mistake. I think in football, as in life, <laughs> like we did, a, he did a great job, no doubt in that last season, but. You're always moving forwards or backwards in in football, and it feels like Palace are like straining to stand still with Roy Hodgson as the manager because the, the, it can never be long term. 
No, I was going to. And get I know long term is long term is a kind of nebulous concept in football as well, but it really can't be long term with with Roy Hodgson. And why do you think he's going to be very ill next week? He's old. <laughs> he's very ageist. He's he's someone he's someone to to like to keep them in the Premier League and no more. He did more than keep them in the Premier League. No, he kept him in the Premier League. That was his that was his job at the start of the season, and now his job is again to keep him in the Premier League. No, look, I understand he did a great job, but my point is, when they brought in Patrick Vieira, they were looking for something more, and when they with the first sign of trouble there, they consigned that to the bin and went back to Roy Hodgson, which was about staying in the Premier League, and that's all Palace are now. See, now it's all been going so well and you've just got the death <laughs> stare from Alison Rudd, but it's fine because I've got the perfect antidote to cheer her up. Alison Rudd, quietly confident or loudly worried, Fulham. Oh, I am a bit worried, actually. Oh, you are a bit yeah, worried. I thought yeah, you were going to be yeah, quietly confident. Because I don't, I can't... I, I think they've been incredibly unlucky with the Saudi money saga. It, they've been the most destabilised of any of the... Um, club teams. <laughs> of the clubs that... I've had interference and it's just downright rude what they've been doing. So theirs is the only Premier League manager who's been unsettled by Saudi money. Their iconic striker, Mitrovic, you know, you you can almost see the pound signs in a cartoon, you know, dangling in front of his eyes and it's made him say stupid things about, you know, being held back by the club and... I know, I know. I've, you know. I've chatted to the man. I know he loves Fulham, and I, I think one day he'll regret saying this stuff because it's all about the money. But if he stays, what's the relationship going to be like between him and his manager, his teammates and the fans? That's a beautiful relationship that will be soured even if it continues, which is a shame. So I do feel they're slightly destabilised by that. And uh William, you know, they think they've got that over the line by signing a, a one-year deal and suddenly he indicates he'd like the money too. And these are key players, we, the key players for Fulham. So I, I wonder what the fallout from that will be. Tim Ream, I'm his biggest fan in the universe, but he is a year older and maybe, yeah, maybe he comes back from his arm injury just just slightly more tentative than he was or something I don't know so I feel like also last season was a slight fairy tale in the sense that everyone had them as going down because they were so yo-yo but it disguised the fact that they struggled to score goals and maybe I don't think I don't see them going down but I don't I can see it being more of a slog for them than it was last season and it's not their fault ultimately because of this Saudi rubbish. Slightly adapting the game, but I don't mind. I feel like we've got two quietly worried <laughs> this time. I feel like this next one might be a bit more loud. Tom Roddy, Wolves. Yeah, loudly worried. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the fact that last season finished with Lopetegui pretty publicly saying his future was in doubt at the club, um, I can see him being possibly one of the first managers to go mm. this year. Um, he, he clearly has I mean he had to be convinced to go there in the first place and clearly didn't want to stay long and in that short amount of time he's shown the potential of, of what his coaching style can do he's a hugely demanding guy um, maybe it all depends on whether Matthias Cunha works out immediately That's that seems like a deal that was intended to appease him um, and it has to work for them Gregor next up 
Nottingham Forest, your old boys. I'd still be worried. I'd still be worried. I feel like you're always worried about Forest. <laughs> <laughs> I am, and bit. it's really because of who owns the football club. I think he's so erratic, Evangelos Maranakis, that it's impossible to predict what comes next. I think, you know, they're doing their best to cull some of the squad because they had a you know hugely uh, bloated squad after last last season's splurge, um, and they're working hard to bring in one or two players. But it looks like Brennan Brennan Johnson might they might be willing to let him leave to kind of balance the books, mm. which is a story of Nottingham Forest's uh, recent history in terms of the academy products they've, they've brought through and sold to kind of balance the books after spending money very badly uh, but Steve Cooper will always give them hope and like I, I still would start the season I said last season that if he finishes the season as man uh, as a uh, Nottingham Forest manager I would be amazed you still um, think that about this season as well yeah I always worry for him just because of, for the same reason for because of who owns the club do you think similar to Alison just very quickly um when she was talking about Fulham, she said she didn't think they would go down, but that they would slog it out a bit more. Obviously, Forrest had to slightly slog it out last season. Do you think it'll be the same again, or do you, are you even more worried that they'll be down even further below? No, I think, I think it'll be. I think what they need to do is they need to, you know, last season was they were so patchy. They had periods where they, they couldn't buy a win, and then they looked like they were going to pull clear to safety. Part of that was about being destabilised in the transfer market as well in the summer and in January. So they'd need to be a little bit more on an even keel in terms of the way that the club is run and that will inspire a bit more kind of uh, confidence and tranquility in the team I think There's a lot of worry there's a lot of worry in this category Alison, Bournemouth Too many unknowns to be sure um, I don't know how ambitious they are they say the right things but I don't know quite how ambitious the new owners are and what sort of backing they give the new manager, about whom I don't know very much. So I like the talk of attractive football and having visions and so on, but I don't, I mean, Bournemouth are the size of team that really need to put other things first other than attractive football and excitement. Um, but there, there is an innate spirit there in the team, which, which for about two months really blossomed last season, where you thought, oh, why did I doubt Bournemouth? They are they're completely together. I really like the vibe at this place. It's a question of whether under new management that can continue. So I, I, I wouldn't put them as um, in my bottom three, not because I think they're too good, but I think they're worse teams. I'm quite excited by them. Yeah, I am. I think he's yeah. We've got a bit of excitement. Excellent. <laughs> I'm excited. I think he's exciting, Iriola. Um Spent two years playing for Marcelo Bielsa. He's, oh <laughs> I, I was waiting for that. Uh, but, you know, we're talking about how teams will approach their commitment to playing a certain style of football. I think you, you put him up with anyone. He's, he's kind of dogmatic about high pressing, intensity, all those kind of modern buzzwords, but really, really committed to it. And what he did at Rio Vallecano was really exciting, I think. It's a small club, underdog. Um, and just reading about his kind of influence on the players there and um, and on that club. I think they got to the last four of the Spanish Cup. They, they beat uh, Barca and Real Madrid. They, they took the game to them as well. Mm. So I think we're going to see a bit of a change in, in Bournemouth's approach, undoubtedly. We spoke last season about Gary O'Neill's departure. That was very harsh. 
but it can still be exciting that they've got someone in who's wanting to attack the Premier League. Tom, it's time to finish on another club that we could spend an entire podcast talking about. Everton. <laughs> Quietly confident or very, very loudly worried? Uh, I'm not going to go very loudly worried, but I'm a little bit worried. I think You can see right now, again, why they got Sean Dyche in because of what he did at Burnley. It's looking like he's going to have to do a similar thing at Everton. Mm. I mean, the, they've signed... Um, Fifty-eight-year-old Ashley, Young. <laughs> and on out Dan Juma, who literally drove away from them last year after agreeing to sign. <laughs> that those 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 two don't. Ashley Young is a great player, and he's as fit as he's as fit as any other thirty-eight-year-old. But they those signings do not inspire you at all. So I think he's going to have to work the same magic he did. At Burnley, and I think he can actually. I think I think think they can do okay. So that's sort of mediocre. Yeah, you're kind <laughs> worried of confident. And you're, confident. You're kind of confident and worried at the same <laughs> yes. time. Greg, are you relegated just, Everton? It's just probably for the last fifteen seasons uh, yeah. of the game podcast. So is it, are they going down again? Yeah, it's extraordinary that the that Sean Dyche kind of had that monologue at the end of the season about everything needs to change and nothing has changed <laughs> except the departure of most of the board. Um. It's it's like the owner is burying his head in the sand and thinking that they can get away with this year after year. And on top of that, they've got the, the hearing in October about the alleged breaches of FFP. I, yeah, they're down. It's a lot of worry, a lot of worry in that section. But we're going to finish on a high, I hope. Three more teams to go in our Premier League season preview. Stick with us, come on. Let's get the energy up. And we're going to do that by talking about Newcastle United. Now, we mentioned with Brighton having had the amazing season of their lives last year, getting into Europe and performing above and beyond in the Premier League. Newcastle did similarly. Gregor, how, how do they approach this season? I mean, how does Eddie Howe approach this season? They've made you know, similar, similarly uh, clever, astute signings in the transfer window. Harvey Barnes, um, similar to James Madison, your point earlier about one of the signings of the summer. I would put him in there, that category as well. How do you think they balance it? Do they do they go for the top four again and just see the Champions League as a bit of as good fun, a few big away days, or are they going to be is expectation higher? I think they re- need to readjust their expectations because last season was more, you know more than anyone expected in their wildest dreams, um, and balance it. You know, when you look, I just looked at their squad last night on paper and think this is mind blowing that they are playing in the Champions League. Mm. So, <laughs> I love Harvey Barnes. I think Tonali, Sandro Tonali from uh, from Milan is is a great signing. He's extremely classy midfielder, young. Um, got a bit of everything, dynamic. But I, I'd still look kind of at certain areas of the team. I think look at centre half and look if they get an injury, they'll rely on Jamal Lascelles or putting Dan Byrne at centre half in the Champions League, like. But that's what I mean. I don't know whether that's that's kind of what my question was getting at, whether that matters or not. Whether they can, well, they can, they can approach the Premier League in the same way and whether they can just kind of have a bit of a crack at the Champions League, knowing that they might then come again at it in a few seasons' time. Uh, it's, all, it's all a kind of... I don't think there'll be great expectations, even among the fans in the, in the Champions League. It's like, we're going to have to enjoy this ride. And Alison and I spoke about this lots last season. It's the team with so, the most kind of Leicester-like energy that we've seen since Leicester in yeah. terms of like this is miraculous really and they need to harness that again because if they don't harness that then they'll, they'll 
you know, will fall down the Premier League table, and that's why I mean both balancing that and realizing that you can't play, you know, above your level forever. The, the fans need to realize that this could be a, a bit of a, a season of readjustment. I think they'll have some wonderful nights in Europe at St James's Park. Absolutely. I think it, and they, that might get them deeper into the competition than they deserve to be. I also think it's really important just because it's season two, we still don't forget that it's a sports washing project because then the sports washing wins. If you think, well, that was all last season's problem, it's exactly the same this season. It is still a sports washing project. And so Alan St Maximin's exit is probably the saddest departure of the, of the summer for me because he's like wildly thrilling and entertaining at times, sometimes like bemusing as well when he kind of runs the ball directly or playing stuff but his move to Saudi Arabia at 26 uh, also you know to a club that's owned by the same people as Newcastle it kind of says a lot about, it says a lot about this <laughs> says a lot about the kind of the strangeness of this summer another topic we could have had a whole podcast on with the transfers to Saudi Arabia we'll come back to that towards the end of the transfer window um, Tom very quickly on Newcastle your views on how their season will go uh, I think it's a fine line for Eddie Howe. Um, I think he's trying to walk the tightrope at the moment of keeping the expectations uh, measured and tempered um, while also trying to show his sort of ambition. Um, I think Tenali might take a little while to bed in, actually. Um, but that deal... And Harvey Barnes made much more sense to me than James Madison. I think they're a real physical side, Newcastle, and that's where that is. What, that's what sort of sums up an Eddie Howe team being fit and physical, and, and playing some nice football. But um, I think they'll do. I think top six will be success for them still this year, even though they got Champions League. You've teed it up perfectly. Tom says top six. Gregor, can they do top six? In a word. Yes. Alison. Seventh. Seventh. Well, another team who I'm pretty sure will be having quiet, quiet aspirations for a tilt at the top six is Aston Villa. Um, did really, really well at the end of last season under Unai Emery. Made a couple of similarly interesting signings. Yuri Tillemans on a free. The, the Leicester, the Leicester clear-out sale has really brought up some uh, good signings for teams in the Premier League. How do we think they're going to go, Gregor? You've talked about their ambitions off the pitch in terms of the ownership and the kind of desires to be competing in that top six. Do you, do you think this is the season that they break into that group? I think there's a good chance. I think Unai Emery is being allowed to almost shape Aston Villa in his image. He's um, Monchi's come in as president of football operations, which is a new title it's to good me. title. <laughs> one of you will have He's that boss. one day somewhere, <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Uh, and they were together at uh, Sevilla. Um, he spent 20 years basically building the modern Sevilla, who were so successful in Europe. Um, and I think there's been a lot, a few other appointments behind the scenes too that, that Emery has been allowed to basically handpick, um, and they've made some some good. I think to, I think Tielemans is a player. I think picked him on, up on a free. Mm. It's a, a great addition in midfield. Uh, Musa Diaby from Bayer Bayer Leverkusen, 49 goals and 48 assists in 173 games for Leverkusen. Like there were bigger teams than Villa, and I say that with all, a lot of respect yeah. to Villa because they're a huge club, but you know teams more established elite who were looking at him so he, that's that's a big sign in a statement of intent and they've got some exciting kids coming through as well um, Cameron Archer who was 
really good at, at Borough last season has been kept so I think they're going to give him a chance and they too have Europe to juggle so can they do both at the same time um, that's the question but I, I think if I was an Aston Villa fan I'd be really excited about the direction of travel now Tom, you've nodded the whole way through that answer <laughs> from Gregor Robertson. That's because he said everything I would have said. <laughs> Fine, moving on. <laughs> no, I, the only the only thing I'd add is just sort of summar, summarising that. It, it's got Villa have the feel of like a, a smaller version of Man City in the Guardiola, Chiki era where they had this kind of plan of creating a new, new club to take them to the next level. And they've sort of... Um, put all the holes in place, all the pieces in the place ahead of it. So Emery coming in has then allowed a guy like Monchi, who so many clubs have wanted for so many years because of his work at Sevilla, and then getting those guys in has allowed them to get the signings like Pau Torres. I mean, I didn't, I never saw Pau Torres going to Villa before this. So they, for many years, they've been highly ambitious and it feels like this is their moment to seize upon it. And I, well, I do, and I don't worry about them juggling Europe and domestic because Unai Emery has proven he can do that. I almost make one feed into the other. He doesn't, he doesn't have that. I, in all the time he's been winning trophies in Europe, he's never sort of moaned about his resources or Thursday night football or whatever it might be. He's, he's used to it and he relishes it. So I think he'll make them feel it's a positive this is this is a slight bugbear of mine is that you spend your whole campaign trying to get in the european places and then when you get there you spend the whole the rest of the season saying it's really really difficult to manage this <laughs> whereas unai emery does not do that i think if we had an excitement ometer i think villa might have just tapped out at the very top i think that might be the most be, yeah. excited <laughs> we, we saved it for the end but not quite the end gregor because listeners you'll have listened to this show hopefully in two parts and enjoyed it immensely uh, if you've got any views, please do get in touch on Twitter or you can email me direct tom.clark at thetimes.co.uk. But we have one more team left. We've got one more team left. And it was the only way to make sure that Alison Rudd would stay with us for the whole of this recording. <laughs> and, that, and, that, and that was to leave Liverpool to the very end. Now, this is a club that is slightly baffling me, I've got to say. Paul Hurst mentioned them earlier in contention for the Premier League title. Now, I'm going to make Alison wait right to the very end. So, chaps, you can go first. Gregor, how are we thinking about Liverpool heading into this season? Gregor's got a stupid face on. <laughs> um, I think the, the, the midfield, they were, you said that Fulham were the, the team kind of most uh, derailed by the, the Saudi uh, influence. Well, they didn't go after Klopp, did they? Not yet. No, yeah. I mean, Klopp, I, I would argue, Klopp, it's, I would argue it's Liverpool. Would not I would argue it's Liverpool because... Despite the fact they wanted to, you know, we knew there was going to be evolution in their midfield. It's had to be accelerated, and along with that, they've lost the man who is their kind of their, their leader and has been for for over a decade. So, um, and Jordan Henderson, and Fabinho, um, and that's undoubtedly unstabilised them. Uh, McAllister's a great signing, a huge bargain as well, uh, if the, the price is right, because <laughs> uh, he had a. Uh, an amazing clause in his contract was it 35 million um, and supposedly he's like is, is uh, another player that's go he's going to have to hit the he's played wide a lot when he, during his time in Germany but I think they're expecting him to play to play um, in midfield so it's going to be a, a completely new like midfield for, for Liverpool and we've spoken about for so long how important that has always been in Jurgen Klopp's team it's the engine room it's not necessarily been the hub of creativity 
it's the legs and the lungs and yeah. the heart. I'll go with everything. And the heart. <laughs> it's and only, all, the, all the, the stereotypes. <laughs> You've saved them right at the end. And Tom, I've got a very, very quick question for you, Tom. You cover Chelsea a lot. I remember there was a game towards the end of last season where Chelsea and Liverpool played each other and there was this bizarre kind of reaction of, where are these two clubs going? Do you, from the outside, just very quickly, do you see Liverpool being in a similar position to Chelsea again this season in the kind of trying desperately to get back up into the top four but not quite making it? I see them being more advanced probably than Chelsea just because of the the, the signings that they've made at, at this moment in time because of the signings they've made, the decent midfield signings even though they probably wouldn't have wanted to recreate the team but and then still I think their attack is far superior than Chelsea's at the moment with I think Nunez will be great Salah Cody Gakpo bit of confidence to tee up Alison Rudd to tell us now in a perfect (laughs) bit of way to finish off you started part one telling us that Liverpool are going to win the title now you can end part two by telling us why if I listed the attacking options we'd be here till Christmas morning so that I mean there is no club in the Premier League that has that array of talent up front and I know it's causing problems for people picking their fantasy teams because they like all of Liverpool's forwards, but they can't, they can't be sure who's, who's going to play and what the rotation will work out. You can't just know for sure who it's going to be. And it's not like Klopp's uh, an inexperienced manager. He'll know exactly how to rotate and get the best out of them. I like the idea of Dominic Sabosli looking like Wijnaldum did for Liverpool, who we really, really did miss when he left. That sort of quiet influencer I just think the midfield will be better I don't mind Jordan Henderson I mean I mind Jordan Henderson going to Saudi Arabia for yes I do mind that but I don't think I'm going to miss him as a player because he was already being eased out he wasn't getting the minutes on the pitch we will absorb his departure easily it's not enough absence of personality he hasn't got a personality anymore because he's sold out so it's fine it's fine fine. don't look back you don't look back Liverpool's mantra ever since I was born has been do not look back you always plan ahead no matter how upsetting it might be that a hero seems to be going or pushed out it doesn't matter You, 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 you win you look ahead you win you look ahead and in Liverpool's case you don't win you really do look ahead the key point is there were doubts about uh Klopp needing a sabbatical or he having run his course the fact that he wants to stay and he wants to put it right and he seems to be completely energized that that is a huge huge bonus he hasn't turned into a deeply average manager remember how much love there has been for his successes in Europe and domestically we will see that again and we will see interesting stuff happen with rather than Trent being an issue Trent will be a solution and will once again be a lauded player I think will be an exciting team I think we will probably as our pre-season has shown we might leak a few goals but when we need to we will score more and we might well be the most exciting team again in the division there you go there you go excitement and confidence to end the pre-season preview of the game podcast that's it we've done it now you can all go and frantically plan and replan and change your fantasy football teams before the start of the new season. Make sure you stay tuned to the Times website. All this week we'll have so much brilliant, brilliant content for you to read as you get ready for the weekend. And we'll be back on Monday with all the best reaction and analysis from the first weekend of the Premier League season. Thanks for listening. See you then.
iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. <laughs> 